So good to see you guys here this morning. The chatter, the chatter, I love it. Hey, Thanksgiving weekend, so glad you guys could be here. Thanks for uh, making it here, bringing the family, all of the things, man. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jared. I'd love to get a chance to meet you. Uh, I have the privilege of being on staff here at Doxa Church. Uh, my main role here at, at Doxa is primarily uh, I'm a church planning candidate. And in light of the week of Thanksgiving, I was thinking of some things that I've been grateful for, uh, thankful for. And uh, those of you who don't know, like this is the three-year anniversary this weekend of like the first time I've had the opportunity to come and be before you guys and preach the word of God. And so this weekend, 2020, <laughs> yeah, wow, okay, that's great. This, you know, this weekend, 2020, was the first time I had gotten a chance to come to Doxa. And I remember uh, Rob Warren, who's the lead pastor of this church, he planted this church. We had a relationship back in Ames, Iowa, um, and we had been in conversation. Uh, my heart was to get to Milwaukee and plant a church there. And I knew we had this church here, Doxa, in Madison, Wisconsin, and we were in conversation like, hey, what would it look like to partner? My family and I come out here for a certain time, and then you send us out to Milwaukee. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. Hey, first step, let's get you up here <laughs> and get you in front of the, the family of believers. And I was like, great, you name the weekend, I'm there. And it was this weekend, three years ago that we did it. I remember coming up, uh, my brother and sister-in-law, they were sitting here in the audience uh, last service, and I was telling this story. Uh, my family and I, we drive up to their house in 2020. Y'all remember that, right? The throes of COVID, like all the, all the masks, all the stuff was going on. And I remember we pull up to their house, and back then the big thing was like the amount of people you could have in a certain spot. And those of y'all who see my family running around, we don't come packing lightly, okay? Like, like we, we got a whole crew of people. Like, we come with a family of six, four kids in tow, my wife and I, right? And so we're coming to, to Rachel and Jesse's house. Jesse leads worship up here. Um, and we're, like, sneaking around, <laughs> you know? Well, first of all, we lock our keys in the car. That was a whole ordeal in, in and of itself. But we're, like, sneaking around. Like, we don't want to make a big deal about this. We don't want the neighbors to see us, right? They're probably going to report us and say, that house has too many people in it, you know? Like, like we were trying to avoid all those things. And, and, and I remember coming here, and as I reflect on that weekend, man, there's the, the one thing that I'm really grateful for is just, man, how this body of believers has welcomed my family and I. And so over the week, in the vein of Thanksgiving, like, this is where my heart's at, full of gratitude, full of thankfulness uh, that you would welcome us here in this place and uh, potentially in a year and a half from now, send us out to Milwaukee and hopefully uh, some of you may catch the urge to come out and do some of that with us, right? Um, but hey, I want to jump into the text, get us into scripture. We've been going through this book of Jonah. If you've been here, we've been going through this series. And as we've been going through this series, maybe you're feeling kind of like me in the book of Jonah, right? You have these kind of roller coaster of emotions going through this book. All right, you're reading it, and you, and you kind of have those moments of, hey, come on, Jonah. Like, like can't, you, can't you do better than that? Right, especially in chapters 1 and, and beginning of chapter 2, where he's being disobedient to God, and God is saying, hey, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to have these people repent and believe in me. And he's saying, no, I'm going to hop on this boat and go a completely different direction. Right? I have this feeling like, man, come on, Jonah. And then don't you remember in chapter 2, he gets thrown overboard. He gets swallowed by this fish. And in, in those moments, I remember I had feelings of conviction. <laughs> I remember sitting in connection group when we were just talking about things, right? Like, how do we confess? 
and Jonah having this moment of confession in the belly of this fish and me thinking like, man, what are some things in my life that I have to confess? What are some things that, that, that we should be confessing in this space? Moments of conviction going through the book of Jonah. But then I have these like, dang, I do that too moments <laughs> in Jonah too, right? Chapter four comes. Uh, Rob just talked about this. Jonah's sitting on this hill. He gets a second chance to go and preach to Nineveh and he does so. But he doesn't do so or, or do so hoping that they will repent. He does so hoping that they won't repent and God will pour justice on them. And he goes and sits on this hill. And what does Nineveh do? They repent from the top to the bottom, from the greatest to the least. And they turn to the one true God. As Jonah sitting on this hill waiting for them to stop and God to smite them. And it reminded me of myself even how I can get into a place where I'm angry at God, especially when he's showing grace to the people in my life who I perceive as enemies. See, I've been enjoying going through this book of Jonah. I don't know if that's evident to you right now. But I've been enjoying it. And I don't know if if that's true for you either. It's like this love-hate kind of enjoyment, right? It's been a good but a painful time as I've been engaging with this text. But here's what I want us to know this morning. The story of Jonah is not primarily about this wayward prophet. We know this, right? The story of Jonah isn't even primarily about this mirror that reflects ourselves. And it's not primarily about creating debates about how large fish can actually be and if swallowing a human is real. And in fact, the book of Jonah ultimately isn't about Jonah at all, but it's like a sign that points to something else. Speaking of signs, I want to talk about signs for just a moment. Would you indulge me for a second? There's a definition going to come up on the screen here. I'm going to be referencing sign throughout this message, and I want to make sure we're on the same level of ground as we engage with this text. A sign by definition is this. It's an object, quality, or even or event whose presence or occurrence indicates the probable presence or occurrence of something else. And these signs, like, they have a purpose And the purpose of signs is to promote or to identify or to provide information or give directions or to raise awareness about something. And in other words, signs are only as useful as they are helpful. You know what I mean by that? Like imagine driving down the Beltline in in Madison, right, maybe hopping on 94, and you're seeing these signs that indicate, hey, you're going to a particular destination. You're about 15 miles from your destination, 20 miles, 30, whatever it might be. Like, you wouldn't get out your car, park on the highway, hop out, throw your hazards on, and go to that sign and be like, ah, thank you, <laughs> you know, for telling me that I'm 15 miles away from my spot. Like, you wouldn't do that. I mean, some of you maybe would. I don't know. That's weird, okay? Don't, like, don't do that. Stop that if you're doing it, Okay. But nobody does that. No one gives that kind of attention to a sign. At best, you would acknowledge the sign, right, but but, but keep it moving. You feel a sense of relief. Why? Because it means you're still going in the right direction. I think this is kind of what the book of Jonah is doing for us. It's this canonized story in the holy word of God that points to the reason why the Bible in its entirety was even written in the first place. Because it points to Jesus. If you're new to the Bible, this is what we need to know. Everything in these pages culminate into something, and that something is the person and the life and the work of Jesus Christ. As I say that, I know that some of us in here, we get that, 
right? We're, we're not new to the Bible. We've been doing this thing for a while. And, and as we read through the pages, it's almost like Jesus pops out to us on every single page in the Scripture. Right? But, but for some of us, like that muscle hasn't really been flexed as much. That muscle is kind of weak. You can't really see Jesus in the things in the Scriptures, the things in the life around you. And even more so for some of you, like you come in here this morning and you don't even really believe at all. Like you don't even know really how you got here this morning, right? It's, it's Thanksgiving weekend and you were visiting family and they're like sprung it on you. Hey, we're going to church on Sunday. Get in the car, loser, right? And now you're here. And maybe what's true about your life is that you have been holding out on your faith with God because you're waiting for him to show you some miraculous sign that he is who he says he is. You're looking for something that either proves or disproves him. But here's what I want us to know about signs, right? If we prioritize and we get mixed up in the sign, the reality is that we will miss the thing the sign is actually pointing to. And as we get into the text this morning, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're not going to be looking at the text in Jonah this morning. We finished that last week. Rob took us through the last chapter of Jonah then. But we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can be turning there and meet me there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And it's a text that I believe helps us fill out some of the events in Jonah. Last week, Rob told us at the end of chapter 4, chapter 4 ends really abruptly. Right, we don't have any resolve in that book. And so he, he, he kind of charged us to say, hey, you can personally uh, make an account and say, hey, how does the book of Jonah impact my life? And you can walk away from that with that application. And I believe that's true. But I also think something else is true for us this morning. I believe Matthew chapter 12, specifically verses 38 through 42, this is where we're going to be. It, it gives us this opportunity to see a text that the end of Jonah actually leads us to. And in my study this week, I've been affectionately calling this section of Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jonah chapter 5. And, and so here's what I want to take us through. Three questions I want to kind of answer this morning, okay? What does it look like to ask for a sign? What sign does Jesus want to show us? And then what does that sign mean for us today? Three questions, okay? We're in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. Here's what it says. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Okay, we've, we've plopped down now in the middle of this chapter and we're introduced to these characters right away, these scribes and Pharisees. And those of us know that if you've read through the New Testament before, that the scribes and Pharisees are people who never really come to Jesus with good intent. They always come to him with something else. <laughs> And as we see them engage with Jesus and, and, and ask this question or make this request, one of the things that can pop into our mind because of the way that Jesus is going to respond is that, yo, there, there's really no room for question asking when it comes to the Christian faith. And maybe this has been your experience. I don't know what persuasion of faith you come from, what persuasion of Christianity you might have come before you come here to Doxa. But I want us to know that Christianity is not anti-question. It's not even anti-seeking for proof. It's not anti-getting your questions answered or asking these things. No, like it's, it's actually anti-jerk, <laughs> right? Like don't come asking, but then asking with intent to disprove or asking with an intent to not believe, right? Christianity has no room for that. But I want us to know that, that the Pharisees and the scribes, 
Right? They were looking for something here. They were asking for a sign. And, and if you look throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, right, it's not really uncommon for people like Jesus to come on the scene and be performing signs. In fact, he was. Right? This, isn't, this isn't new to Jesus. This is a common practice of prophets as a whole. Moses came doing signs. Elijah came doing signs. <laughs> right? All the prophets came doing certain things. And so asking for a sign wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't they were looking for this sign. The problem was that they had already seen many, and yet they were still in denial. See, to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had already done so many things. He had healed many from sickness and disease. He had showed authority over creation by calming the wind and calming the waves. He had made people who couldn't walk leap like deer. He had people who couldn't see become overwhelmed with life's vibrant colors. And he even rose a little girl from the dead. And even if you go just a little bit up in this chapter that we're in right now, we'll see that Jesus heals a man's hand who had been shriveled up and he cast out demons from this young boy. And still we see these scribes and Pharisees coming to him right now and he say, that's not enough, Jesus. We need to see something else. We still don't believe. And the question I have for you is, can you imagine that? Like I know sometimes we can get caught up in our minds, but man, if we were back in Jesus' day and we saw Jesus walking the earth doing all these things, there's no way that we wouldn't believe that he is who he says he is. So I want to ask you, like, can you believe that? If you say no, like, I kind of want to pressure you a little bit because I think we can. See, there's this principle that's going to pop up on the screen right here. I think this is helpful for the message. You see, the problem for the unrepentant heart is not a lack of convincing information, but a commitment to misinformation. See, the problem for the unrepentant heart is not lack of convincing information, but a commitment to misinformation. See, we live in a day where most of us are not uninformed about things, but we are misinformed about things. I mean, think about it. We live in the most connected time in history. Like, have you ever considered the power of the thing that's probably sitting in your pocket or sitting in your hand right now? The power that this machine has in it, the information it gives, right? The, the only information mine's given right now is a timer for how much time I've been preaching at the moment. There's one in the back too, but I need one closer to me that like beeps red, right? So I know when I'm about to go over. But we have access to an almost instant information machine, like anything we want to know is literally a quick, a click away. In fact, if you woke up this morning and you looked at your phone any moment between then and the time you came to church, you likely consumed more information in those couple of hours than anyone in Jesus' day could have done in a decade. Like we live in an information age. We live in a connected age. As I was preparing for this message, I ran into this uh, this study that was done uh, by this investment group up in Minneapolis, Minnesota called the Deep Water Assessment Management. Uh, they're an investment group that invests in public and private growth companies, specifically companies that prioritize like, information and technology. And there's going to be a couple graphs that come up on this screen. Uh, this, this first one I want to show us, okay, I, I know it's early in the morning, not super early, but probably too early to do some math, okay, so I'm going to make this quick and, and make sure you get the information you need, Okay. This first graph shows us this. 
the percentage of waking hours that we have with information like worldwide, okay? If you look at the graph, you see this upward trajectory from the early 1900s all the way to the present time. And you can see we almost have like a 90 times difference in, in, in how many waking hours we actually have with information from back then to now. And I want to focus on a, on a particular time period because this has changed dramatically really, really fast. If you just even focus on 1940, that's just a generation ago. My parents were born in that time. The number of waking hours that we have with information as a whole back then has dramatically climbed to where we are now. And, and, and records show that this isn't going to be changing anytime soon. But I want you to see this other graph too we're going to toss up right here. This one really blew my mind, okay? This is the ratio of information consumed per capita to the total information created. Out of all of the information created, look at that, in 1900, we were consuming very little. Quickly spikes in the 1920s and hits its peak in 1940s. Out of all of the information created, the world, the average person at best could consume, what, 2.2% of that information? But then as the time goes, you see this drastic decline into the 1980s, into the 2000s, over into the 2020s, and into where we are now. And this decline shows us something that I think is super important for us. It doesn't show us this reality that we're no longer consuming information. They're showing us this reality that there is quite literally too much information for us to consume to actually keep up. We are virtually making no dent in the information created versus the information that we can actually properly consume. And it's just going to grow. We have access to so much information. If you ask me, maybe too much information. But here's what we choose to do with this information. We choose to fight against and shut our ears to anything that might challenge what we already think. If you're asking what it means to be committed to misinformation, this is what it means to be committed to misinformation. So how do you know when you're being misinformed? I'm glad you asked. Just three things, a three-question litmus test. You know you're being misinformed when you listen to the same voices over and over again. If you want to know if you're potentially being misinformed, Understand that you may be in an echo chamber of voices, the one to three voices that you listen to consistently. You may be being misinformed. Secondly, you know you're being misinformed when you agree with everything that you hear. If you're in this echo chamber and the things that are coming at you and, and you're listening to things and the only thing you hear are things that you actually agree with, you're literally training yourself and telling your mind and telling your psyche, I'm never wrong about anything. <laughs> if that's true, you're probably giving yourself to misinformation. Thirdly, you're easily angered by differing voices. <laughs> like if the information you receive, when it's different from what you normally receive, when it's rarely different from what you normally receive. If that angers you, if your primary response is anger or fear or resentment, 
you're probably being misinformed. So you're committing to misinformation. It's like being in a room surrounded by information and ruthlessly committing to your little corner with only the information that you like. And frankly, technology makes this really easy to do. And when I say this, right, you got to understand, like, I, I'm not preaching to you. I'm, I'm preaching to us, okay? If, if you were to take my phone and look at my Instagram or look at my Twitter, like, yes, I'm still on Twitter because I'm old, right? But you would see in my feed so many things that just already feed me the things that I know, like, and enjoy. And the voices that come to me are primarily voices that already affirm what I believe. Like, this is what's true about us as humanity. This is what we seek, See, the problem is this, being committed to misinformation makes it difficult to be convinced by new information, even truer information, no matter how much evidence we're exposed to. See, this is true with what we think about the world around us, and ultimately, to make sense of our message today, it's true about what we think about God. You see, it's right here in our text, <laughs> with the Pharisees and the scribes, see, they've always thought about the Messiah in this one way. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes as the Messiah in this particular way, and there is no compartment in their mind for it. And so they deny it, and they question it, and they ask Jesus for a sign. But look at verse 39, his response to their request. Look at this. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, what Jesus is doing here is making this reference back to Jonah chapters 1 and 2. At the end of chapter 1, if, if you remember, which I don't know how you could forget this, Jonah's on a boat. And he gets thrown overboard during a storm. And God sends in his grace a great fish to come and swallow up Jonah. Because apparently sitting in the belly of a great fish and a bunch of fish guts, right, is a small price to pay for a saved life. But then at the end of chapter 2, the fish vomits Jonah up on the shore. And they said, he has a new or renewed chance at life. And this is what Jesus is saying right here. He says, this is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will I, the son of man, be in the grave for three days. Which, if you think about it, it's a bittersweet statement. <laughs> now, yes, he's alluding to the resurrection, which we'll get to in just a little bit. That's the sweet part, and I hope you'll uh, praise with me whenever we get there. But the bitter part is this. He's essentially chalking it up early in his ministry and saying, hey, the people that he's talking to right now, they won't get it even as it moves towards crunch time. Like, as he's getting closer to the cross, when crunch time is coming, right, they won't change their mind, what they're going to do is call for his judgment, and they will call for his life, and they will ultimately have him killed. He's predicting the future in a way that fits the moment by telling them, basically, it won't matter what he does. It doesn't matter what information they're presented with, what new information, what truer information they're presented with. They will still be committed to getting him to the cross. See, they would rather kill the Messiah than repent of their sins. And then he compares them to the Ninevites from the story in Jonah. Look at verse 41. It says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. (laughs) See, I love how Jesus does this in the New Testament. So often he'll take our gaze from the time period that he's in and put our gaze back on the Old Testament. He never leaves that outdone. I love that about Jesus. And what he's doing is he's showing us that the same proclamation that he made when he came on the scene in the New Testament, proclaiming who he was, the Son of God, God himself, and he comes on the scene with a message for the people. You know what his message was? It wasn't look for the right sign and believe. It was repent and believe. And he shows us here in the New Testament that that is his message. In the Old Testament, it says that that is his message too. So imagine this scene. Jesus is standing in front of his people, and he's telling the story about Jonah and how the Ninevites repented. And he tells his other story about the wealthy queen from the south, namely Ethiopia, and how she bowed down to Solomon's glory. These are stories that the people of the time would have known very, very well. We at least know one of them super well. We just went through it for the last several weeks. And he's saying, hey, the, the, the Ninevites repented when a disobedient prophet came with a terrible five-word sermon, and the queen of Sheba believed Solomon's God when she saw his majesty. A people who had no business responding to a prophet who came with a poor word repented. And a woman who had wealth of her own, who had a dynasty of her own, was seeking Solomon for wisdom. And when she came to him, saw what all he had, and she was like, I want to believe in that God. Came, giving him wealth, at least a third of what he was already making on a yearly basis anyway. She was doing fine. And yet she came and bowed down because she saw the splendor that God gave Solomon. He says, but someone greater, even than Jonah. He says, someone greater, even than Solomon, is right here. He's standing before you in this moment, and what you do is you reject him, and when you reject him, you ask him for a sign to continue to prove himself. Then he's saying, he's saying, soon there will come a judgment. And at that judgment, this evil Gentile people of Nineveh and this Ethiopian queen of the south, they will rise up against you, the chosen people of Israel, and they will judge you. Can you imagine that? These people who believed and repented, and and they were Gentiles at the time. And to this point, until Jesus dies and dies for everybody, Gentiles were literally cast out from the promises of God. And here Jesus is saying to this people who would know everything about the Old Testament, everything that was promised by God, and, 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 and he's saying, hey, they're in and you're out. And they will scream from the gallery of judgment, wow. We repented from the words of a short, stubby dude smelling like fish guts. I don't know if that's what he looked like. I just envisioned that with Jonah. And you have the Jesus, the Christ, your awaited Messiah. And instead of repenting and believing and accepting him for who he is, you curse him and you ask for a sign. 
Have you wondered what the gallery of witnesses might say when you get to judgment? See, I don't mean for this to take an end times turn, <laughs> but here we are. Right? We need to know that the fact of Christianity is true, that there will be a judgment. But that judgment isn't based on what you've done. And that judgment won't be based on the signs that you are looking for, what you respond to, but they will be based on who you believed in and who you placed your faith in. The truth of the judgment is this, either you will be judged and condemned in comparison to those who repented and believed, or you will join them in glory as Jesus looks at you and says, hey, she's with me, and he's with me. Doc, so will that be your story? Will your story be like this generation of Ninevites who were an evil people? but repented at the call of God and who will be in the kingdom? Or will your story be like these Pharisees and scribes who righteously drown themselves in skepticism and who righteously drown themselves in misinformation and who will miss the taxi to paradise, still looking for that perfect sign? Okay, well, maybe I'm being a little too hard on the Pharisees right now. Okay, let's, let's say we give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay, let's say the Pharisees and scribes, they're coming to Jesus, and they actually would have believed in the sign that they showed him, right? They come to him asking for this particular sign. Hey, Jesus, show us this. What if Jesus did it? And what if the Pharisees and scribes were like, oh, man, yeah, that's great. I believe in that. Like, what if they were just looking for comfort? What if they were just looking for a peace of mind, right? Just a little bit to just tease their palate to, so they can hold over for the next day of believing that Jesus might be the Messiah. See, here's the problem. Even then, the problem is that their belief would be based on what they see from God and their tendency would be not to be satiated by what Jesus does for them, but it would be to ask for more and more and more and more. Like only believing that Jesus is who he says he is when they can see and feel it. So we have to know this points to my main point for the text, and it's this. Demanding a sign in exchange for belief will always lead to letdown. Like we have to know, like, I don't, I don't know if you identify with the Pharisees in this text. I don't know if you identify with the scribes here, but you might. Like I know I have at some point... Like, if we're honest, some of our relationships with Jesus sounds like this. Hey, Jesus, if you could just help me out in this way, then I would blank. Or Jesus, if if you would do this, then I'll do this, right? Or Jesus, if you're real, why does such and such happen? Like, I can't believe in a God when there's so much evil in the world. Maybe this has been you. We can fill in these blanks with so many things in our lives, and we can find ourselves bargaining with the God of the universe, but we have to know. That if this is our regular relationship with Jesus, we will be left with a disappointed and a stale faith. See, demanding a sign in exchange for belief will always lead to letdown. But here's the caveat. The sign of Jonah shows us that accepting the sign that Jesus already gave us 2,000 years ago will lead to eternal life. Y'all, the sign of Jonah is everything. And it's not that Jonah was spit out by the belly of the fish, but that Jesus was spit out of the belly of the earth, claiming victory over sin, hell, death, and the grave, proving that death no longer has the last say. 
Y'all, the sign of Jonah proves the power of the resurrection life for Jesus, and it extends the power of resurrection life to you. And so what's true about us as believers is that when we place our faith in Jesus, you not only receive the assurance that someday, far off in the future, when you die, that you'll be in eternity with him, but it means that you receive the assurance that the power for the life to come becomes yours, present, right now in your life today. So what does that mean for you? It means that the life of freedom that you're looking for can be accessed now. I mean, that's what we're looking for, right? We're looking for freedom. We're looking for life. We're looking for joy. We're looking for contentment. The resurrection proves that the risenness from the grave isn't just something that we expect in the future, but it's something that has power for you right now, and it can be accessed for you in the present. What we have to know is it's not from any trivial sign that you might be begging God for to make the circumstances right in your life. And it's not by any strength in and of yourself. No, these things can only be accessed by you through the power offered to you through the sign of Jonah, Jesus defeating the grave. See, doctor, the sign of Jonah changes everything. And it's not about Jonah, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the greater Jonah. And all of Scripture points to him. See, I love how the Gospel of John talks about this person of Jesus. In Salt Company, over the last couple of months, and we're in a new series now, but our old series, we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've been talking about these I am statements of Jesus. And I love what Jesus says about himself, and his statements will come up on these screens. I just want to run through these for us. Jesus in the Gospel of John says that I am the bread of life. He says those who believe in me will never spiritually hunger or thirst again. He says I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He says I am the door of the sheep, meaning that through him is the only way to true security and true provision into the door for safety and out of the door to graze in green pastures. He says I am the good shepherd in a world full of false shepherds or false leaders. Jesus is the one true and good shepherd who knows and cares for and lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, meaning he is the only way to be reconciled to the Father. He says, I am the true vine, meaning he is the one true source of life through which we, the branches, bear fruit. And lastly, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the sign of Jonah the one who conquers the grave and those who believe in me will do the same. Although they live, they will never die. Y'all, this is the promise of the gospel. And this is the sign we are all looking for. And Jesus gave it to us 2,000 years ago. So I want to kind of tell you where I am with this. My mom's name is Linda. And I told you guys just briefly before starting the message, like some things that I've been grateful for in this season of life, last three years, coming here, being a part of the Doxa family, so grateful for that. When we moved here last year, about a year ago, a lot of good things often don't come without trial. We get here in July of 2022, in September of 2022, I get news that my mom has just had a massive stroke. 
and she would battle in the hospital for six months, finally passing away just a few months ago in March of 2023. And it shook my life. She was 68 years old. She would have turned 69 the next week after she had passed. We were ready to celebrate her birthday. And I remember those days. I would drive down to Kansas City. That's where I'm from. My mom would be at North Kansas City Hospital. And I'd go into the ICU and I'd get some time with my mom there. And I'd be talking to her and I'd be saying, hey, would you want to pray with me? And she would want to pray with me, right, in the limited amount of ways that she could communicate. And I remember in those days, the greatest thing that I was praying and pleading with God for was that he would heal my mom. I haven't talked about this story much in public, but those of you who know, anytime you've interacted with me, like this has been the greatest prayer. This was the greatest prayer during those moments. Knowing that God is who he says he is and knowing that he has the power to heal and praying that he would do so for my mom. That was my greatest prayer. As we sat here at the couches right by the rock wall, if you don't know we have a rock wall out there, I sat with our staff team and we would talk about these events And tears would flood my eyes, and I would be talking with a mystified view of what even I could comprehend about the things of God. And I'd be lying if I never said, like, God, hey, if you would just heal her. I would. I don't know, cancel Milwaukee and plant a church in Kansas City. (laughs) No, I'm not going to do that. But I find myself in ways bargaining with God for the life of my mom. Because I knew that he was able. Like I knew that he could do that. If Jesus rose from the grave, then there's nothing impossible for him. And so I would beg him to do this healing work in my mom. But here's what's true. I had to come to this place of realization that my hope couldn't have been in whether my mom walked out of that hospital or not. My hope couldn't have been in whether my mom would have regular interactions like she used to with my kids, her grandkids. My hope couldn't have been in, been in that. My hope couldn't have been even if she lived for another day. No. My faith had to show me that my hope had to switch to being in the fact that if it was her time to go, then I would see her again. See, the only hope I have in my mom being gone is the sign of Jonah. It's the hope of the resurrection. (laughs) My hope had to move from holding out on a sign of a changed circumstance to being refreshed by the sign of Jonah, a risen Savior, which meant what? A risen Linda. So as I close, I have one more question for the room. If you're skeptic in here, what more do you need to see? Like maybe you're here today and you're holding your faith hostage in Jesus because you feel like he's withholding something from you. Or maybe it's hard for you right now to believe in Jesus, to put your full weight of everything you believe, your full trust on him, because you're still waiting for him to do something about that thing that happened to you so long ago. Or maybe not that long ago at all, right? Only you know. 
And you bargained with him saying, Jesus, if you do something about this situation, I will have greater faith in you. Or if you do something, I'd commit to serving you more. Or I'd really love to be free to worship you better. I'd let down my garden community. God, if if you would do this thing, if you would just show me a sign. But y'all, if you're not believing in Jesus based on the information you already have, there is no sign in the future that will change your mind. So here's what I want us to hear. Stop looking for a new sign. And trust the sign that Jesus conquered the grave. If you're not a believer in this room, here's your next step. Your next step is to repent and believe that. Believe in the sign of Jonah. What's stopping you today from believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that he doesn't have to show you anything more than what he's shown you? He's already showed you the greatest thing that could ever be. He has conquered death 2,000 years ago. The sign of Jonah, he has risen from the grave. Listen, I know you're still going to have questions, and you can bring those to the people of God. You can bring those to the church. They can rise in your mind. And I know you're still going to have the hurts from life. Listen, I still have plenty. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Jesus, hey, what was that all about? Ask Peter, are, are you still not eating pork for Thanksgiving? You know? All these things. I have questions. I want to know. But here's my charge to you. Don't let your inquiring mind and the bruises that you've received from life be the reason that you miss out on eternity. You can believe that Jesus died for you and be learning what it means to live in him at the same time. And listen, I know people, many people who would love to help and walk with you in that. And if you're a believer in this room, here's something for you. Would you just be refreshed again by the sign of Jonah? Would you remember back to when the resurrection literally meant everything to you? The first time you placed your faith in a risen Savior and the power that that meant for you, the joy you had knowing that your sins were 100% forgiven and that you had eternal assurance that if you were to die, that you would go to heaven, would you again Let that well up in your heart and let that rule your life in a way where even if Jesus doesn't do anything about your situation, he is still good. The sign of Jonah means everything. Jesus has risen. Life can make us want reminders and signs from God to stop a sickness or to heal a relationship or whatever. And sometimes he's kind, isn't he? Sometimes he's kind, he's good to give us those things. But what I want to do is I want to call us back and ultimately rest in the fact that the real sign that you are looking for has already been done. A risen Savior means a risen you right now and for the life to come. Let me pray that we receive this. Father, we are grateful for you.
Father, we're grateful for your son. We're grateful for what he's done, his birth, his life, his work, his death, his resurrection. We are grateful for what you've accomplished in him. Father, would you work it in our lives that we would believe in this reality anew? Maybe for some of us the first time or maybe for some of us the umpteenth time, but would you work it in our hearts to believe that, hey, we can rest in the sign of Jonah. We don't have to be holding out for some other sign. We don't have to be waiting in sorrow and sadness in the circumstances that we're in because we know that because of Jesus, what he's done, he has conquered the grave. And if he has conquered the grave, we can rest assured in joy and contentment right here. Father, you can provide it for us. Jesus has purchased it for us. Would you call us to remember and know and love that? Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.